My name's Joanne Averson, and you are so welcome to Series 3 of my podcast. Enjoy. I am absolutely delighted to have Michelle Van Straten from Many Moons Yoga in South Africa on the podcast today. Michelle, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much, Joanne. I've been wishing to chat to you for so long. Um, You've been such an inspiration and have have literally changed my life. So thank you. Well, I don't know how that happened. We'll talk (laughs) about that maybe. Thank you. I'm so glad because, you know, when when you write a book, there's something very anonymous about it. It, in the sense that you, it's got your name on the cover, yeah, but you have no idea where it goes. You, do you know what I mean? There's this kind of like, oh, is anybody actually even reading it? And you put your heart and soul in and you write it all out and then it's edited beyond anything you could imagine. And then it's cut and you're like, no, that's what I wanted to say. And then you realise it's not about you. And then people take it and work with it. Mm. And then when it if if and if it comes back to you, which I'm very surprised that it has today because that wasn't the point of our call. Um, it, it's like wow. But here's the thing: what I wanted to ask you was about your journey into yoga. I know you're in South Africa. It's a different culture to perhaps what yoga is like in the UK and what it's like in America or Australia mm-hmm. or anywhere else around the world. And of course, yoga is something that women do generally more than men. There's more women in yoga classes statistically. Mm. And yet a lot of it over the years has been led by Indian men coming. I'm not making this a sexist issue for a moment, but it's very um, it's a very strong masculine practice sometimes. And I think what's coming into it now is a more feminine approach. And I wanted to ask you about that. So how did your career begin? I think, were you a herbalist? Yes, I have so much to actually say about this, which is really interesting. So I'm going to try to be as coherent as possible. Um, So I started yoga when I was 14 and a half, 15 um, in South Africa. I was, I battled from a really um, intense illness, which eventually turned out that it was depression, but at the time depression wasn't very well known. And um, I think I also sort of had a perfect life. I had a beautiful family and a really nice support system and couldn't, this idea, this word depression was something that was um, labeled for, for people who had uh, trying lives. Um, So in any case, I I'd gone to see many, many doctors and many specialists and no one could help me. um, And I decided well, I'm going to teach myself yoga because there weren't very many yoga studios in South Africa at the time. Um, So I couldn't find a teacher, but I I managed to get a book by David Svensson, which was the Ashtanga yoga, um, like that classic manual. So I managed to get my hands on that and won um, MTV Power Yoga DVD. Um, And so I began my journey teaching myself yoga and meditation and working with with plants, with different herbal plants and remedies to, to try help me feel better to be able to get out of bed in the morning and to actually do things. Um, and when was this in 2001? Yeah. So I was about 15 at the time. And, um, after about two or three years, I, I started to notice quite a, quite a shift and a change in things. And I was, I was diligently practicing about two or three hours of, of asana a day, and then about an hour or two of meditation a day. 
Um, and I managed to find a small studio that had Ashtanga here. And I continued this journey with Ashtanga, eventually going to, to Mysore. And then um, I lived in Boulder, Colorado for a little bit of time with Richard Freeman, uh, but very, very immersed in the Ashtanga, Ashtanga world. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with the sequence where at the end, you know, foot behind the head and there's the, all the dropbacks and the these intense contortions of the body. And, and luckily for me, I have very open hips, so very shallow hip sockets and very, very flexible spine. So all of these things came really naturally to me. Everyone, um, everyone decided that I was an incredible yogi based on these contortion things that I could do. And of, of course that feeds into a certain sense of like, oh great, I, I can do something, you know. I know this one so yeah. well. My own career was like, oh, you're so good at it. Little did I know that I was hypermobile. Anyway, your story totally, is going totally. Yeah. You're so you're so flexible. You're so great, X Y Z, um, and you don't you don't think anything is wrong because also I guess at that age you're kind of resilient. Um, and then what I what I started to notice is now almost 22 years later, um, pa pain that has been present for the last two years. That to the extent that I've been unable to walk properly without a limp, um, no back bends really possible unless they sort of small spiraling asymmetrical back bends, which I find are more accessible. Um, and have recently went to see an orthopedic surgeon to to actually see do I need a hip replacement? Do I need a double hip replacement at the age of thirty seven? Mm. Um, and you know the whole time it's like. I've been limping and everyone's like, well, you do so much yoga. Why are you in so much pain? And, and, you know, it's only re really in the past, I'd say four years that things started to change. And really in the last two years that I've been introduced to your work, to the work of Michelle Nayeli Bovier, um, to, you know, some of the, the, the leading people and John Sharkey, of course, that through you that um, to really, really look and see what, what I was doing was completely against, against what my body needed. Um, and there was already flexibility. So what I should have been doing was focus on really creating more loving structure and not this this tearing apart and the stretching of the joints um and so the orthopedic surgeon um I, i'm really grateful that he his diagnosis was that i don't need a hip replacement yet there is arthritis beginning and i could see he showed me on the x-rays so the the projection is in, when i'm 60 hip replacement double hip, hip replacement will be needed um, and he, and, you know, his thing was, he was like, yep, see this with yoga teachers. Like yoga is great in like, you know, drops of yoga here and there, but he, he also, his approach is stretching to your end point and holding the stretch. He, he is not an advocate of that. Um, and he, he said, yeah. So, yeah, so basically all of these things, which, which we've been, we taught in studios and which I see is, is still quite a huge culture in in south african yoga um of the you know the 90 degrees and the opening the hips and the the peak poses that really focus on the pretzel shape um that i mean firstly they're completely inaccessible to most of the population and secondly when you're doing that enough and i know because you know i was there when you do that enough that it gets to the point where your body says no the body well, says no. michelle I, I, i'm just sitting here the thing is what we're not rushing into do is saying all ashtanga is bad or all of anything is bad. No. What we're saying here is the body expresses itself archetypally. So, you know, from my book, I have a whole scale from fixed to flexi. Now, if you come in with a very fixed body, you can withstand all that. And the oh. male body tends to be, tends, not always, but tends to be less less soft on the 
on the on the on the suppleness scale from fixed to flexy, the male body tends towards the fixed end. Mm. And so can the female body sometimes. That's not an issue, but the female body tends generally towards the flexy end. So you're mm. Indian temple dancer, and I'm not saying men can't be exquisitely beautiful dancers. What I'm saying is that it's different archetypal patterns or somatic archetypal patterns are expressed depending. Now, if you think about it, I'm not teaching you anything you don't already know. I'm just commenting on the fact that in the West, and the words you used that were so brilliant, tearing apart, we tore apart the body from the being. We tore the sensory awareness of of subtle, subtle awareness, soul, spirit, um, the energy field segregated by the law that allowed science to dissect and investigate the human body. And mm-hmm. I don't think people realize the actual physical cost of that rift in the 1500s caused by a very honourable gesture of of René Descartes to get the Pope to sanction dissection. And it cleaved this, it tore apart the being and the body in the West. Now, when yoga came from the East to the West, and, and if you've been privileged enough to work with Angela Farmer, who worked directly with Iyengar, they had to develop a protocol that the West understood. Mm. And so Iyengar worked with with army cadets. So it was all about soldiers, warrior pose, standing stiff and strong, being able to be still on parade. And all the other kind of east to west transitions were done because we were so busy intellectualizing. We had to have this very strong physical practice in order to get us out of our minds and into our bodies. Absolutely to be praised. But then what happened is women started doing this yoga with the same zeal that didn't necessarily suit their bodies. And I've worked with people who have reached very high levels in Ashtanga yoga and stopped menstruating because it's such a strong masculine practice. And it was designed for young adolescent boys to control their natural urges and hold themselves together. And that's not what the female body needs. And we all of us have a masculine and feminine aspect. So bringing that together with some subtlety is what's being called for. And it's it's both neither, either, or. We've got to reestablish this balance. And I don't mean by feminine yoga. I don't, I don't mean any type of yoga. I'm not talking about yin yoga. I'm not talking about Scaravelli yoga. I'm not talking about any type. I'm talking about the yoga that honors you. Yes. Where did you get in your, Mm. I mean, you've you've given us a very fast track of of, of Mm. what it's cost you to fight for the pose. Mm. What what has been your experience, like with warrior pose, for example, the the, the squared hip? What's that? I mean, so currently I don't teach warrior one. I don't add it into any of my my sequencing. Um, I'm I'm a crescent lunge kind of kind of girl. For me, that's the most natural in the body. Um, warrior two, all of my poses, I'm pretty much pulsing between different different postures. Whether it's warrior two in like a trikonasana like shape, 
we're almost almost in a sense it's kind of like I want to drop the names of postures which I know is not not particularly useful in a yoga class but but I want to be able to take the mat away and to take the the labels of the of the poses away and and just to be like, well, this is the structure, this is the skeleton for the pose, and now let's adapt it to your bodies. Because if there's anything that I've seen is that the pose looks completely different in each person's body. And yet, as you know, as teacher, as teacher trainees who are coming on a course, you're taught this is the this is how it looks. This is a textbook warrior two or warrior one. And you know, you have this very unrealistic pose. And then you get all the trainees are very confused when they go teach their first class and they see nobody's warrior one looking as if it wasn't a textbook. So well, I think my biggest mission and thanks, you know, I really like thanks to you and to Michelle um, Bovier, who I, who I got to know you through um, really it's about this looking how, looking at the pose as okay, this is an outdated system that um, if you're doing it on a daily basis, it's not healthy. Like maybe we can tap into a warrior one and a warrior two every now and then. But if you are doing a daily practice with these intense poses that are put, putting so much strain on the body, it's not, um, it's, it's not going to be good for long-term. And I think that that's, that's the biggest thing that lesson that I've learned and that variety is key. And so if we're able to approach the posture anew each time we are on, on our mat or in our practice to approach it based on our nervous system that day, based on our energy levels, based on our the cycle, whatever it is, even, even the seasons, I feel like, have an effect on which practices we Absolutely. should be doing. Absolutely. Th- then we're responding in with a real relationship to what yoga is because yoga is that connection. It's that harmony. It's like it's not taking the practice and, and doing the same thing every single day. It's based on yoga is really this connection of of taking the practice and applying it to the seasons of the um of you know the the cosmic seasons, the moon cycles. And it must change according to these things, I feel, in order for it to be alive. I love that. And how do you integrate your own work, your historical, your 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 passion? I mean, I love it, your passion for the herbs and because they of course grow and express differently according to the seasons right so you've got a reason for calling it many moons yoga I I love that name where did where did that inspiration come from well I think it was really from my love of the natural world and um being able to to see how the elements reflect in our own body and how they reflect in the environment and how we can use movements in in that way to express um to express our connection with the cosmos really. So many moons yoga was also because my practice has changed over so many moons. Um, so it was kind of like a throwback to all of the, all of the things now, which I look back on like the dedicated Ashtanga practice and the, and the things which I now say, Oh, I did this wrong. Um, I, I'm grateful for them because they have taught me. And so it's a part of that moon cycle that it's, it's a, it's a long cycle of, of getting to the point where I am now. And the biggest thing for me now is I'm still trying to change the practice to slow it down um, because I I see the need for it. But there's also, um, you know, there's obviously also cultural cultural things and 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 like the the society that wants things to be quick and to be you've got an hour you go in and you've got to do the class and and you know there's there's all of the energy that's and and because I am a passionate person I tend to get really fired up about things (laughs) very fiery I love it (laughs) it's about learning to slow things down so I think that the many moons also helps me to remember that it's about the moon takes 28 days to you know go through its cycle and to to really like be in that process in all of its parts 
the other aspect of the name, which I think is because of this feminine, this feminine quality, which I feel rising and and we we were speaking about it before you know before we started recording is that this rising of the feminine and that's not that's not a not a gender thing at all that's this quality of receptivity of listening of deep deep listening in our bodies and and i think that for me um one of the biggest influences to the way that i perceive the world and the postures and the practice now is um is through through tantra um so specifically um shiva shakta tantra which is a non-dual um branch of of um of tantra and it's you know the body is the temple and and i think for so long it was an intellectual understanding that i need to love this this body but i was through the practice i was kind of destroying myself until the body said no and the pain got too much. And I realized, well, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm intellectually understanding these things that I need to create this vessel that can be um, a big opening for the teachings to move through. But yet I'm doing all the things that are causing a contraction in the body because you know, when there's pain, there's this contraction. And yet what I'm truly seeking is this opening and expand expansion where my body begins to melt into the environment around me, where the, the fascia in my body is an extension of the webs around me in nature. Yeah. Um, and to do that through meditation and the, and you know, the tantric path is brilliant like this because of the visualizations and the very feminine approach to the way the practice unfolds. And so I think I'm at a point now of seeing how all the little things I've done in my life and all the the wrong turns, so to speak, have brought me to a point of merging these these um, these things in a practice where, and I'm still on that journey for sure. But it's it's getting to a point where I'm understanding and and really, you know, your work was transformational and studying with Michelle Bouvier as well, transformational to help me to see that. We are an extension, but it's not, it can't be an intellectual understanding. We are an extension of the universe and it has to reflect in our movement patterns and the way that we approach yoga. I'm speechless. So well said. So well said. The the fascial matrix in and of itself is basically the 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 water manager of the body in many ways. We could call it that because it is fluid. It's, It's a bound water matrix. And this is where we get so caught up in, for example, I don't want it to contract. I want it to expand. We have to be careful with that because we do want it Mm -hmm. to be able to contract. That's something it has to be able to do. That if you can think of it in terms of the round, you you Mm. want it to come in to squeeze and you want it to come out to release. And it's that, it's, that's the heartbeat. It's It's like Mm -hmm. taking a, it's like taking a, a cloth full of fluid and squeezing and releasing, but it's all contained inside something that's all connected to everything. And mm. in the embryo, it starts, as you know, heart-centered. It start, The heart starts above the crown and everything is woven. The heart is like the, the sun. It's the, the heliocentric universe of you is, is, is the sun. And, or maybe it's the moon. I don't know. You know, I haven't yeah. really gone into those particular metaphors in the body and I, I have some ideas on it, but, but before we go all, um, into that the the geometry of all of that is so key and this is where you know little stories like i get fascinated it's you know it's in the book about copernicus theory that the that the galaxy is sun centered is heliocentric um the uh galileo upheld that theory and was under house arrest for doing so because the church thought man was sacred hue in sanskrit is 
divine. So human is divine man. And therefore, the earth must be the center of our galaxy. Mm. And the academic and intellectual rigor to understand the movements of the celestial bodies relative to the earth was extensive. So when some, and, and they created these cycles and epicycles because they couldn't make sense of everything and everything was different because basically the whole thing was based around the fact that the Earth is one of the planets. It's not the central body among the celestial bodies. And, and so the moment Galileo stated, yes, Copernicus was right, we are heliocentric, the sun is at the centre and everything revolves around that, all those epicycles, all that intellectualization of what it should, would, could be, if only, all that academic drama was redundant. Mm. <laughs> that, that, that was treason at the time. Mm. And it, it was we're in this era again. And basically the discovery that we're sun-centered meant that every single one of those planets had the same geometry relative to each other. Now in the human body, we are so about the brain, artificial intelligence. How can I recreate the brain, neuroscience? How can we simulate synthetic versions of what our brain does? How can we, it's brain, 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 brain. And when you go back to the embryo and you go back to the nature of the cyclical Mm. process of embryology, we wove ourselves into being. We wove ourselves into being sun-centered. We're heart-centered. And the heart's rhythms and the heart's cycles, particularly emphasized by the feminine body and the moon cycles, I like to think of the moon as maybe the 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 bindu the 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 six and a half chakra between six and seven. I don't know what you should call it, but mm. geometrically it's a completely different story to what we learn. But when we start bringing those back, what what we must be careful not to do is throw out the baby with the bathwater. We're not mm. saying ashtanga is wrong. We're saying it's a beautiful masculine practice. And maybe we can incorporate it occasionally. But mm. people like you and I need a strong practice, but not a strong stretching practice, a strong stiffening practice, because we're so flexible. We need to be a little bit more fixed. And this is where understanding fascia and the somatic archetypes just becomes so, so crucial. But sure. what I wanted to ask you about, because we we mentioned this beforehand, was you First of all, I just want to acknowledge you for for the courage that it takes to go through the journey that you've gone through. And I I want to ask you about the process that I think is a process of self-forgiveness. I think you have to you're in a you're expressing to me a process of self-forgiveness where you're kind of forgiving yourself for all the extremes and you're doing I call it fascia whispering. You're listening to your own tissue saying, but we're trying to tell you we hurt. Can you stop doing this, please? Translated as ouch. That's how the body's language is. Mm. And John Sharkey talks about the fascial matrix as our tissue of temporality. You know, I think he's a complete mm. genius. So, you know, he, I just love his work and he follows it all through with research. And his scientific brain is as powerful as his ability to translate that. Oh, another leak. So as that tissue of temporality, it's it's bringing together 
your understanding of time and timing. And what you were saying to me beforehand was that you were bringing in these more subtle practices, spending your time differently. Can you talk to that a little bit? Because I think it's one of the, and I know how excited you are and you want to say it all so quickly and I do too. So just <laughs> get it. I absolutely get it. Totally. But go, go for it. What, what, what's the time? Time, time, you time. Know, you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, and I, I'm really appreciating that you're saying, you know, Ashtanga is not, it's not about the, it's not about the practice. Um, and it, it's in Tantra, they say, when when a student asks for a practice, it's not about which practice, it's about which practice for which student and when. Exactly. Because the practice is always going to change based on uh, on so many different influences. So even while I was sticking to a, a strong set practice where I was doing these repetitive movements with in the Ashtanga sequences over many, many years. I was. I still had a um, a very strong meditation practice, um, and that was based in, in in tantra. And so I was constantly inquiring into the state of um, of reality of where does my what I think my body where my body ends and the um, the external world, so to speak, begins. Where, what is that border? And slowly, what I realized is, and through some of my teachers, is that. We can move in our practice. The yoga practice should be an exploration about these, these, uh, these concepts which we've created about, oh, I'm moving my body now. It's like, well, is, is the air not an extension of my body as well? Um, and then it becomes this beautiful poetry where we're moving and, and I feel like I'm trying constantly to distill this in my classes where it's sure the practice from the outside looks a certain way, but it's a timeless moment, this timelessness that you're talking about. It's a timeless moment because we're exploring the borders of what we think our body is and, and what the external environment is. And for me, the most um, harmonious way that this expresses itself is through through the spirals and through through moving in a way that is, I don't have to force my body. I don't have to effort because as soon as I effort, I feel like I get locked in this idea that I have a body that needs to push and do the certain thing. And, and of course, you know, you can condition the body so that a, a chaturanga to a plank feels easy. But the thing is, what is the most natural way for us to do these movements? So if a warrior one doesn't feel great in your body, do a, do a crescent lunge and then finding positions of the body where the spiral can then be an expression of um, this natural, it's like a natural movement that you see a vine that's creeping up a tree, the way that that grows and, and molds itself. And I think that that's where my practice is. And it's just about now trying to uh, teach people this uh, through my own direct experience, <laughs> which it's is a tricky thing. It's, yeah. But yes, I mean, my my own practice for the last eight years has been very, very deeply into Surat Shabda Yoga, which is the yoga of the sound current. And if you think about yoga as a whole, the, the three keys in my world are the yantra, the mantra, and the tantra. So the tantra is the physical investigation of those beautiful boundaries. I love how you said that because I remember right in the beginning of my manual therapy career, I, I, I was talking to an osteopath and he said, where do you think the fascia ends? And I said, I don't. I think it becomes the plasma and then it becomes the etheric body and then it's the animation of the energy field. And then I saw Alex Gray's pictures of sacred mirrors of the energetic body. And I was like, 
that's what it looks like. That's exactly what it looks like. And this osteopath said to me, you know, you know, what are you on? I said, I see that. I see that in my Surat Shabda Yoga. I see that in my meditations. And of course, Surat Shabda Yoga is a training for stillness. Mm. You know, on that you look like nothing. And I remember somebody commenting once that, you know, oh, Joe Averson, she's got a book about yoga and yet she doesn't do it. You don't see her on Instagram doing anything. And I and like, sorry, love, there's no lycra, there's no mat, there's nothing. There's <laughs> me, but I'm telling you, the realms in here you can't even begin to imagine. I mean, seriously, I don't care. It was a real yeah, wake-up call. Yeah, it, if you want, we, we, we can have you standing um, standing with your hands flat against the ceiling and I can um, invert the picture for your Instagram just so that there's a hand. It's so ridiculous. It's like, so it's- ridiculous. But just to say about the mantra, obviously, is the sound current and the yantra yes. is obviously the light. And we are sound and light moving around, captured by... The fascia, the fascia transmits light, the fascia transmits sound. This is gold standard peer-reviewed research, there's loads of it. So I'm not being casual with that. Mm. What What I'm saying is it's almost like we're going full circle back to the ancient wisdom which is, you know, why that chapter in my book is called Ancient Wisdom and New Knowledge, because we're going so deep. But where we have to go, we have to go, is we have to go through the geometry, geometria, mm. the measure of Mother Earth. And mm. this is where it's the, the subtle capturing, excuse me, oh, the subtle capturing of one moment in time. And I think that's the hard part. I think it's almost unbearable. For us to stop the chitavriti, the noise, and mm. um, be still. It's hard. Mm-hmm. You sit there and you've given yourself 20 minutes to do a practice and you sit there and you fold your arms or you put your hands in prayer or you do a bit of yoga to get yourself into your physical body and you sit and you chant and chant in silence and whatever. And the mind goes, oh, my God, it's dustbin day. You've got to put the dustbins out. Don't forget, shh. And what about that? And do you remember how upsetting that was? And it's just suddenly it's like, You've got yourself into this beautiful state so that all the crap can come up mm. and all the what the soup's filled with. I mean, who wants to go into that kind of dark? Exactly. You'd much rather be moving on a mat. So I know you know this interface. So yeah. do you talk to me about this precious interface for, me, for I would mm. call, where spirit meets matter? Where the, Gosh, the matter yeah. of our spirit meets the pattern of our matter, or whatever you want to say. Totally. How does that mm. now? You articulated it so well, and there's a couple of things that that I'd like to 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 just sort of hark back to is the the mantra, the sound that you're talking about, how the how fascia, fascia can transmit that sound. It's so fascinating to me. I am. Um, I lived in Peru for a fair amount of time, and I, I studied with the Shipibo tradition, which is a, a tribe in the in the Amazonian um, basin. And their way of healing, they work with different plant medicine, with one particular plant medicine, and, and their way of he- healing is through sonic vibration. So it's singing. So they will sing to whatever is needed to be healed in the body, whether it be illness or mental mental illness. And it's so what you were saying about this, you know, this primal wisdom this indigenous wisdom and i feel like indigenous cultures have always known that through whether it be your indian philosophy with the, with the chanting you know with with mantra whether it be in shipibo tradition with the singing you see it time and time again that this our body is a oh, there was an amazing um 
thinking about, you know, how our bodies become this like resonant tube for sound to move through and it moves through the central channel and then moves through all of the fascia and all of the nadis and we, it, we, we can resonate on a certain level. We become like strings of an instrument. Um, we are, so the, we are we, a we are the instrument. instrument. Yes. We, we self-organized, we self-crafted ourselves as an instrument. It's like, if I know I'm interrupting you, but it's like somebody said to me, what do you mean? And I said, look at an orchestra. You formed as a drum but you self-animated the the, the, mm. the skin of the drum. You wove it into yourself as an embryo. You did it before you could spell embryo. You didn't even know the word embryo. You you created this like if you were the guitar. Imagine or the cello or the violin. You you your inner body, your bones become the more stiffened aspect, but it's still soft mm-hmm. tissue, still fashion. Mm-hmm. And then you tensioned into place the the so-called strings, and and you go around naming them. You go around calling them muscles with origins and insertions. They don't have origins and insertions. They're just sealed together in these little tenderness patches. And it's literally like a, it's just, I can't even tell you when you dissect it, you know, and I know John Sharkey is looking to bring a dissection program to South Africa, which is just going to be so exciting. It'll be, I think it's going to be 2024. Um, And I'm so excited because I I really just feel that he's bringing this, powerful mm. neutral message to everybody he's 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 such a pioneer he's such a pioneer and, and as I a clinical think- anatomist he really understands the science he's not just I call myself a happy dissector but he's, <laughs> the, he's the real deal and he because he's also an exercise physiologist he can make sense of the movement and although he's not a yoga teacher um as such, he's Pilates is where he's put his uh, focus a bit more on personal training. But mm. his work in medical exercise is is really about what you're talking about is mm. having this range of change. It's a range of change. It's changing the stimulus. It's it's getting out of the cult of I do this yoga and listening to my body needs this yoga now. Definitely. And- different to what you did yesterday and I think I think what you know going back to your point on this interface between um basically meditation and and the asana practice no I see it so often a lot of people don't want to take the time to practice because meditation is a practice initially it's a practice until you realize that it is your true nature to like your true nature is below all of that, what you're calling that soup stuff, you know, but it's a practice to still the mind. And, you know, I remember uh, uh, meditating and, um, and kind of like you s- sit for the first five minutes and then the mind comes up with these, like, Oh, I need to do this. Like you say, no, it's, it's garbage day or this, that, the next thing it's, you get to see all of the little techniques, the mind, pushes in there to prevent you from sitting until such a time you don't react. And then the mind begins to realize, oh, okay, I can't. And then it tries other things like a little bit more. Oh, it gets smarter. (laughs) Totally. Up until the point that you've practiced enough where you can sit. And and then that stillness allows one to be able to perceive the body as the instrument, to, to feel this entire architecture so that when you are flowing on your mat, it's not just asana. It's not a posture. It is an orchestra of movement, of sound, of breath, of of everything moving at once. And you're in that space of it all being the, the whole cosmos is moving through you, basically. 
I I love this. I'm in heaven. And yes. <laughs> and then you you but this is the thing. So so we have to be careful. Hang on a minute. Because what we're not saying is, oh, just get on the mat and do what you like. Because that's not what you mean either. And no. I, I hear you when you're working with beginner teachers. It's like when you're teaching anatomy. Start off knowing your origins and insertions and your bones and your muscles and your nerves and your blood vessels, because that gives you the guide that tells you where you're going. Now, in, in England, we have London taxi drivers. We're not talking about Uber or anything like that. We're talking about London taxi drivers. They all have to go through this thing called the knowledge Mm. And to do it quickly is about 18 months. Very few people have ever done it in less than a year. And I I know firsthand because when my father was alive, one point in his life, he was an engineer for a London cab company. And he used to take the cabs to the Hackney carriage office to have them passed for their standard of uh, mechanical structure. He was an engineer. And he inspired me to ask the difficult questions that I ask about biomechanics because I think it's it just doesn't apply to human beings. That's as simple as that. And a lot of it, sorry, it's true. We don't have levers, pendulums. We're not mechanical, period. So as far as I'm concerned, it's the wrong metaphor. It's a spell that we're under and it's time it broke. Now, what? but the point is what we're replacing it with is what my father also had firsthand from the other cab drivers was this thing called the knowledge. Now, I'm sharing this with you very deliberately because when you do the knowledge, the taxi drivers cannot sit down with an, an atlas, you know, an A to Z, we call it the A to Z atlas of roads in London and learn them. That won't do. Mm-hmm. They have to get on a bicycle, a motorbike or get in a car. And usually they go on a motorbike with the with the little atlas on the front, like you would have a shopping list on your shopping trolley in a grocery wow. store. And they drive around London learning each of the streets But here's the thing. It's an intellectual and a physical and a kinesthetic and a mental process. Mm -hmm. And if they don't devote themselves to it, they won't learn the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I had a taxi driver in my class once and he said, oh, yeah, well, I'm just an old taxi driver. And I said, no, 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 no. You are a very valuable contribution to this class because you've done the knowledge. And he looked at me, said, how do you know? And I said, because I know more about cabs than I should. I got taken to school in (laughs) one every day and we drove to school one day and the wheel fell off and rolled away and my dad was like oops because <laughs> it was on the way <laughs> I can't tell you the stories anyway but to stay with the point the the doing of the knowledge is a thing it's mm-hmm. a big deal and it's between 18 months and three years to learn the knowledge and because it's kinesthetic, they have to go down those roads. They have to go past those hotels. They have to know the back streets. They have to know the one-way systems through experience. They have to register the flow of traffic because that tells them maybe there's roadworks. And then they find out that that one-way system's being changed. And they clock this in their beingness in current time. I know you're, you're nodding madly at the metaphor. Anybody that's listening to this as a podcast, Michelle is grinning, (laughs) nodding madly. And so basically my point is, if you get in a black cab in London, a London taxi driver has done that knowledge. They know where they are and why they're there and how quickly they can get you there. Nowhere else in the world and no other taxi service does that because they are tested at the Hackney Carriage Office. They are tested every year that they know what they know. 
And so you can have a lot of confidence in their insurance, in the standard of their vehicles and in their knowledge. Now, what's the point? You meet people in the physical body world, be it in manual or movement therapy or practitionership, yoga, Pilates, you know, Tai Chi, whatever it is in the West. And those that know their anatomy behave as if they have the knowledge. Hmm. But here's the thing. Very often they acquired that knowledge by reading the names on the A to Z but Mm. not necessarily driving and moving through the streets. It was an intellectual practice, so they can answer all the questions. But when the tester says, so what do you do with that if it feels like this to the client, Mm. they've collapsed naming the postcodes in the body, which is what I'm calling the origins and insertions of muscles, which are not the Mm. same in everybody. And there is nowhere in the human body that a muscle isn't connected. It's connected everywhere. All of it's connected. So what it does is it gives us this incredible map of the postcodes and tells us nothing about the accommodation. And what I'm getting from you is you've kind of, this is going to sound odd, but you've learned how to be a castle and you've learned how to be a house and you've learned how to be an apartment block and you've learned how to be all these different types of accommodation. And then separately, we can go and learn all the names of the muscles and the joints. But what your experience is doing is bringing this all together into something that uniquely describes you and honors the cycles of change. Mm in the flow of traffic, in inverted commas, if we use the knowledge metaphor, because the knowledge is totally different from the information. Mm. Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, said, knowing the names of things doesn't mean you understand them. And this is what we've got to emerge through, is this business that we know the names of everything in the body, and you've not got a clue what to do with them. And it's your body. And this is where you have to bring your own spirit back in, right? And what has it taken for you, Michelle, to honor that? Because I know you're a pioneer and I know you don't have agreement everywhere. I mean, does everybody just go, oh my God, this is amazing? What happens in your classroom? Over really, yeah, that's it's really interesting that you ask that question because I think the response. I don't know. I don't know how other teachers view me, to be honest, but I think that the response from the students is actually quite liberating because I feel like I'm teaching more a movement practice. I almost want to label it movement practice and not yoga because I'm, I'm giving autonomy to people to explore the space of the posture based on not going to the end range of motion firstly. Um, because I think, you know, for me, that's really what that nailed me moving, especially in a vinyasa practice, going to end range of motion and then continually moving on a daily basis, I I think has contributed to a large part of where I find myself. And, and so I think there's a couple of components that. You meant that negatively, didn't you? You meant that when you say where you find yourself, you mean in pain because we call that integral range. So it's actually the tensegrity and the integrity of that joint is being pushed and pushed and pushed to the point of muscle creep. And then it's overextended and you can't get that back. So it's an, that's a point. I just wanted to make that. Yes. Thanks. And that's, that's exactly where, where I'm at with that with, with particularly with my hips. 
And so now when I'm teaching, um, I feel like there's a lot of a great response from the students in the class that they they feel a lot more freedom in their body. They feel the movements are more natural. And I think that this is the thing. It, it seems like it's still, I like to teach a challenging practice that still um, the sequencing is very creative. You know, it's, there, yeah. there's, there's really interesting things like places to move in, but I'm not telling you to do it in, in a certain way. I'm asking you to feel what is the pathway of least resistance in your body that it feels like it wants to express itself? Because goodness knows for so many years there, I was following the path of most resistance that yep. hurt me. And, and I, I, you know, I never want to, I never want anyone to feel that what I've, what I've had to go through. Um, and, you know, you were speaking earlier about the forgiveness and the path of forgiveness, and, and it really has been a process of, having gone through what I've gone through to get to this point, I'm going to do my utmost to make sure that, that I can educate people to, to move in a way that is, they can be moving for the rest of their life, not just doing peak postures for a few years and then ending up, you know, with hip replacements. Amen. Mm. Amen. And that forgiveness, that for me is a spiritual practice. This is where people say to me, Joe, you've brought the spirit into the science. And I think, well, isn't that all there is? I mean, uh, here's the thing, Michelle. When, when the very, I'll never forget the first time I saw a cadaveric specimen, as it's called. Um, mm. What's present as missing is spirit, and that's not a sad thing for me. I, I don't want to live forever. God help us. <laughs> and none of us are getting out of here alive. And so it's a question of how much grace. Can we live while we're here? Can we live with how mm. much loving? How can we manage the power that every single one of us has, the archetypal power that every single one of us has, both of the psyche or soul? I don't mean psyche as in psychological, although that's where it comes from. But psyche means soul. So in the soul and the soma, the somatic practice, can can my beingness flow through that now that for me is not a free-for-all I know for some dance teachers it is and people with very innovative practices absolutely and what I love about yoga is that it offers us the opportunity to say something like let's look at sage pose I love sage pose let's look at sage pose let's let's find our sitting bones let's feel where our spine is let's see can we cross one leg over the can we fold what what, what folds do we make and I, I talk a lot about folding and enfolding and unfolding because that's how we form Mm. And it's like exploring that as a as a framework, but it's like putting a kid in a playpen. You know, you put the kid in the playpen and you give it its toys, but you don't tell it. Now, what you've got to do is stack that block on top of that block, and then you'll be doing <laughs> proper practice. No, you you give the playpen, you make the child safe, you put the cushions around the edge or whatever it is, and then the child does what it does. It does child. And I feel that's the lovely way to play with postures. But what you said about forgiveness is it, mm -hmm. it's more than that for me. The, the 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 kind of the yoga of awareness, if you want to call it that, is very much about that forgiveness and that innocence and that playfulness. And it's actually Personally. now neuroscience is telling us like we needed science to tick the box to make it okay that what our great 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 grandmothers knew. I mean, they got burnt as witches and murdered as witches for knowing it. But intuitively, let's bring this sense back, for goodness sake, and have this inner sense, this innocence, mm. 
there. You just mm. see how mm. everything, just our energy just dropped. And that for me is the divine presence. That's what it is. And it's a playful presence. It's mm. a playful presence. And that means every single one of our practices is a ministry to ourselves. What if it's a magical ministry? Can oh, it be magical? Mm, and you know, what, what's the divine design? Well, I am the divine design. I, this body, you know, oh my goodness, Michelle, have I got things I can say negatively about my body? You know, my boobs are too big. I'm not strong enough. I don't look lean enough. I'm not quite tall enough. I'm, I could give you a whole spiel. You know, my, my face and my teeth are crooked and this is that and da, 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 da. This is me. This is me. And can I be present to me on a mat in present time? And I think mm. we lose that sense of presence when we get so caught up in a sequence that we just follow by rote. It's like praying by rote. It's just like praying by totally. rote. And it, it's like, but we are trained um, to, to pray consciously in present time. And even if it starts with, I pray, I wanted to pray right now and I actually don't, I actually in a hurry and I actually just want to get on with something and I need to put the, the garbage out and, 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 you know, dear God, help me uh, bless everybody. Oh, for God's sake, I haven't got enough time. Please give me more time. That's a more real prayer than citing a chant or th th that doesn't mean anything to you in my world. Totally. Do you, and do you find that although you're yeah. using the framework of a posture that you're now giving people much more leeway within that safety net yeah, definitely and you know i loved what you said about innocence because it's that inner sense the yeah. innocence is the connection back to the inner sense and and we, we it's almost like we come full circle because the older I get, the, not that I'm old, but the older that I get, the more childish <laughs> I feel. Do, do you know, it's like totally. <laughs> I've had so much. I've had a lot of experience, and I've had some really, you know, really tough things to go through in my life. But uh, but I'm at a point where it's like it is a wonder to re. I'm I'm feel for the first time I'm re-experiencing the yoga practice because I'm not labeling it as a yoga practice anymore. It's becoming an exploration that I'm I would like to invite everyone into the space of like you say that it becomes a moving prayer. It is a moving prayer. How do you express your moving prayer and to give people the autonomy to be like if you want to lie in child's pose this entire class and roll around on your mat. I'm totally fine with that. Take all the props you need. I'm go with that. I, I think, you know, it's just this idea that um get deeper into this pose or, you know, you can't do this, you have to do this. This is not the way the posture's done. Be between two planes of glass. For me, it just takes out the the magical ministry, the moving prayer, the autonomy of how each individual body expresses itself. Um and and that's where the magic lies. That's where that's where yoga is going to really make a difference. Not we don't want to be robots. We want to be authentic to our own heart. Amen. Mm. Take it into our own heart. Amen. Mm. Michelle, on that note, I'm going to complete this gorgeous conversation. It's going to be one of many. I know that. Definitely. And I just thank you for reaching out, and thank you, thank you for for joining me today. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you're offering. Um, I, I love your work so much. And you're just such a delight to, to be with and to learn from. Thank you, Joanne. Well, you're so welcome. And I, I assure you, it's 
mostly channeled. Don't blame me. <laughs> God bless. <laughs>